Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what your Holy Spirit is saying to this church. Lord, help us to come under the authority of your word, for it is the source of sound and healthy doctrine. And we pray that you would set our paths on the path of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 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 Well, earlier this year, the Christian apologist Rebecca McLaughlin released a book called Confronting Christianity, subtitled Seven Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. This is an excellent book. I recommend it. In it, she addresses some of the classic objections to the Christian faith. Questions like, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? How can you say there's only one true faith? And hasn't science disproved Christianity? But in addition to these more philosophical questions, McLaughlin, who has struggled her whole life with same-sex attraction, also addresses people's social objections to Christianity. Questions like, isn't Christianity homophobic? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? And doesn't the Bible condone slavery? And I think that while there are some skeptics today who continue to ask the more classical philosophical questions, I think there are more and more people today whose objections to Christianity fall into this second category of social objections. And as we continue on in our series today on 1 Timothy, I want to take some time to tackle that last question. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? This is an objection raised by many in our day, particularly in America, and I believe it couldn't be further from the truth. Far from upholding slavery, the gospel has served to undermine the institution in every culture where it has genuinely taken root. Furthermore, the greatest theologians, even of antiquity, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, all condemned slavery based on their understandings of the Bible. So this is not a new idea, guys. I believe that the abolition of slavery is the undeniable trajectory of the gospel message. And my hope is that by taking some time to address this specific question this morning, we'll all be strengthened in our faith and better equipped to answer other social objections that this world is raising to the Christian faith. And I just want to say as an aside, um, when we planned out this sermon series months back, and, and I knew that this message was coming up, I originally asked Fumi if he would give this message, uh, and, and he was like, no way, man. I'm going <laughs> to preach on uh, uh, verses 3 through 10 of this passage, So, uh, which he did a really great job on, so you guys can check that out. But uh, he left me to chafe in the wind, so here I am this morning. <laughs> now, by way of introduction, let me quote at length for a bit from McLaughlin. She writes, In 1881, escaped slave-turned-abolitionist intellectual Frederick Douglass published his final autobiography. In it, he describes growing up a lonely and destitute child. But age 13, he heard a white minister preach that all people, slave or free, rich or poor, were sinners in need of Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, recalls Douglas. But one thing I did know well, 
I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. Douglas sought counsel from an older black Christian who told him to cast all his cares upon God. Douglas responded, This I sought to do, and though for weeks I was poor, broken-hearted, mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. McLaughlin continues, Douglas's story exposes a deep tension in the history of slavery, particularly in America. First, how did so many white people who identified as Christians embrace slavery? And second, how did so many black people, oppressed and abused in a supposedly Christian country, come to embrace Jesus? And I think McLaughlin sets up this issue well. And I think really there's only two possible answers. Either the secular critics of religion in the West knew something about the Bible and about Jesus that these black Americans did not know, which I don't think is very likely. Or these black Christians who embraced the gospel knew something about the Bible and about Jesus that these Western critics today do not know. So which group is correct? Who has the better pulse on what the Bible actually says about slavery? As we come today to 1 Timothy 6, it's important to remember that this is not the first letter. This is not, excuse me, this is not the first thing that this letter has said on this topic. Looking back at chapter 1, verse 10, we see that the Apostle Paul condemns enslavers. This is sometimes translated slave traders or kidnappers. That is, those who steal people and sell them into slavery. And we need to be clear that this would include a direct condemnation of the race-based chattel slavery that was practiced in the American South and the transatlantic slave trade. Did you know that it was a capital offense in the Old Testament to steal and sell people? Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Now, that seems pretty clear cut to me. But think of all the Americans, even some of our founding fathers, who if they were governed by the laws of ancient Israel, would have been put to death for stealing, selling, and or possessing stolen people. That's how grievous this matter was and is to the heart of God. When the famous British evangelist Charles Spurgeon visited the U.S. around the time of the Civil War, he wrote, I do in my inmost soul detest slavery. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder I have no fellowship with of any sort or kind. And I, would, and I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church than I would a man-stealer. Wow. To the American pastors who defended slavery as, quote, a peculiar institution, and sadly there were many, including the likes of Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon responded, It is indeed a peculiar institution, just as the devil is a peculiar angel, and hell is a peculiarly hot place. 
Now, I think Spurgeon was absolutely on target. But lest we stand in judgment of a previous generation and fail to apply the same medicine to ourselves, I ask you, where do you see hypocrisy in your own life that is contrary to the word of God? Where are you denying the image of God in others? And I think one of the most obvious areas of hypocrisy in our day is the massive consumption of pornography, even among Christians. Pornography is a hundred billion dollar industry. And yet many of the women and even children caught up in this industry are literally slaves, mm -hmm. victims of human trafficking. And even those who are, who are not often grow up in oppressive and degrading circumstances which let them down this path. Mm -hmm. And by giving these pictures and videos one extra click, Christians drop the coin into the slot and become partakers of an oppressive machine, nullifying the image of God. So we get all fired up about slavery and then we treat others as a means to an end. Hypocrisy. I want to make a suggestion to you if you're a man or a woman struggling with pornography today that I used to make when I was a campus minister and I would disciple young men. I would encourage them what if you set aside five to ten minutes a day to pray for the kinds of women and the kinds of people who are caught up in the pornography industry? And just allow the Lord to help you to think about what are the kinds of circumstances that would put them there? What are the places where people are most likely to be caught up in the slave trade? And just take time to pray for them and ask the Lord for his heart for them. Because what we need, what we need the Holy Spirit to do is to rehumanize people who are created in the image of God. Amen. These are people's sisters and mothers and little brothers. Now I want to get back to the topic at hand. And it's important for us to admit that one of the passages that these hypocritical and very biblically selective southern pastors used to support the African slave trade was 1 Timothy 6, 1-2. Here Paul speaks to Christians who are bond servants. The word is doulos in Greek, which is related to our modern word doula. Right? What's a doula? It's somebody who provides service for a woman throughout her pregnancy and delivery. Now, the Greek word doulos can also be translated as slave or servant. For example, this is the word Jesus uses in John 15 when he says, No longer do I call you servants, doulos, but I have called you friends. And I want to say that I wholeheartedly agree with the ESV's translation of this word in 1 Timothy as bondservants rather than slaves. Not because it's less controversial or because I want to cover something up, but because it's actually more accurate in what it communicates to modern ears. Because when we think of the word slave or slavery as modern English speakers, it immediately evokes in our minds all the trappings of the trans transatlantic slave trade, which was race-based, it involved kidnapping people from their homeland, it was lifelong extending to their children and grandchildren and beyond, and these African slaves were given no access to education or wealth or social power. Meanwhile, none of these things was actually true about the bondservants discussed in 1 Timothy 6. It's like comparing apples to oranges. Their situation had to do with debt 
not with skin color, being kidnapped. It wasn't lifelong. As soon as they worked off their debts, they could be freed, often leaving with a good sum of money in their pockets. And furthermore, some of these servants were actually more educated than their masters, serving as tutors or as doctors or as trusted property managers, as in Jesus' parable of the talents. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that bonded servitude in the Roman Empire was a bed of roses or a desirable <laughs> state of affairs. That's why in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul says to his Christian brothers and sisters, if you can gain your freedom, do so. That's why the early Christians were known for buying each other's freedom. Sometimes even selling themselves so that their brothers and sisters could go free. I wonder where they got that example. <laughs> but we must remember that in the primitive economies of the ancient world, there was no social safety net that was sponsored by the state. There was no poverty program. There was no government bailouts for failed businesses. So if a man got himself into a situation where he couldn't pay his debts, he could keep his family together and retain his self-respect by selling himself as an indentured servant to his creditor until he could work off his debts, and then he would have to be set free. Now, compared to Rome, the situation was even more humane for servants in ancient Israel. These servants had laws that protected them from harsh physical abuse. Their masters were commanded, them, commanded to allow them to take a day of rest. And every six years, any Hebrew man or woman who had been sold into slavery had to be set free, whether they paid off their debt or not. Often, genuine love would develop between the servant and the family, and they would choose to remain in the house even after being set free and take on the family name. To quote from William Lane Craig, he says, Slavery in ancient Israel wasn't slavery as we think of that term. It was actually an anti-poverty program. And in some respects, says Craig, I think it's better than what we have in our modern Western cultures, which destroys families, ruins people's self-respect because they're not working. Whereas in ancient Israel, a man retained his self-respect. He worked for his income. He paid his debt. He kept his family together. And to call that slavery is just a gross misrepresentation. That's not what we think of when we think of the word slavery. The point is that modern Bible translators need to take care how they translate words like doulos, and modern Bible readers like us need to take care to differentiate between the apples and oranges of different cultural situations. It's also important, let me just say, for Christians to understand that not every system of injustice Prevent, uh, presents a sort of morally justifiable situation for violent revolution. Consider the example of Jesus. Though Jesus was under the, th uh, though the Jews were under the thumb of the Romans, Jesus was decidedly not a zealot. When he was arrested, he asked, "Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me?" And when Peter produced a weapon, Jesus rebuked him, saying, "Those who live by the sword." Die by the sword. So as Christians, we need to be careful not to give a free moral pass to every godless riot and violent revolution churned up by the sinful world. That wasn't the way of Jesus. So with all these things in mind, let's look back at 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. It says this. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, this passage has been seen as, at best, an upholding of a very bourgeois system, and at worst, as a tacit endorsement of slavery. But I think neither gets at the real point. What Paul is trying to discourage is slacking off in the name of Jesus and to the shame of Jesus. Think about it this way. When I was in college, I used to serve tables at Ruby Tuesdays, and the general manager of our restaurant was a Christian. Well, what if I used our Christian brotherhood, our equality in Christ, which is real, as an excuse to take it easy? Or to show up late, or to speak disrespectfully. Wouldn't that cause the gospel to be reviled by my co-workers and by the watching world? And so far from using Jesus as an excuse for slacking off, Paul would have reminded me that I must serve all the better since those who benefit are believers and beloved. Now I hope this helps us make some sense of an otherwise troubling passage Although I doubt these will ever become favorite memory verses of 21st century Christians. (laughs) Which is why when we come to a passage like this, we need to be sure that we set it within the wider context of all that the Apostle Paul had to say on the topic of slavery. Because I believe that the gospel that Paul preached was nothing short of social dynamite for the institution of slavery. A spiritual revolution that lit the fuse for social change. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7.22, Paul says that he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant in Christ. In other words, Paul encourages bondservants to remember their spiritual freedom and free men to remember that they are bound to Christ. He's trying to equalize the situation in the Christian community. In Galatians 3.28, Paul famously proclaims, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this equalizing of all people under the cross of Christ had explosive implications. How could it not for the institution of slavery? That's why in Philemon 16, Paul urges a fellow Christian to receive his runaway slave back into his home, quote, no longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So to summarize, in Christ, slaves were spiritual freedmen, equals in the eyes of God, and brothers in the church of God. And this is the place that the New Testament leaves slavery. When the canon of the Bible is closed, the institution remains in the Roman Empire, even among some Christians. But bond servants are viewed as spiritual and intellectual equals, and all oppression is forbidden. McLaughlin writes, With no room for superiority, exploitation, and coercion, but rather brotherhood and shared identity, the New Testament created a tectonic tension that would ultimately erupt in the abolition of slavery. And she gives this cool analogy that I want to share with you. In the Shakespearean play, The Merchant of Venice, the merchant Antonio uh, makes this deal with this moneylender, Shylock, that if he doesn't pay him back, that Shylock is owed a pound of his flesh. And so um, when Antonio faults on his debt, 
Shylock is kind of he's kind of happy about it, and he comes to Antonio and he wants his pound of flesh. And uh, a woman named Portia, disguised as a lawyer, tells Shylock, you know, you can take your pound of flesh from Antonio, but what wasn't a part of the deal was any blood. So you can take your pound of flesh, but not a drop of blood. And furthermore, if, you sh if he sheds one drop of blood, then all your possessions are forfeit to the state. And so the arrangement leaves Shylock in this very awkward position. Because on the one hand, he's owed a pound of the man's flesh. And on the other hand, he couldn't collect on it without shedding blood. And this is sort of the awkward position that Christianity created for the instant, institution of slavery as it spread throughout the Roman world. The blood and freedom of all men increased in value as the world came to believe that all men were purchased at the cost of the blood and freedom of God's one and only Son. Jesus said this of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He entered into our slavery, brothers and sisters, male and female, black and white, slave and free, in order that we might enter into his freedom. But the gospel goes even deeper than that because the message of Jesus was not only that he came to forgive sins, but he also proclaimed that the God of the universe longs to be in intimate relationship with every one of us. You know, the religions of the ancient world were all very servile. But in contrast, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, do loss. No longer do I call you slaves. But I have called you friends. How could such a message not undermine the institution of slavery? So I want to go back to the question that I posed at the beginning. We talked about the skeptical questions posed by the world, and in particular the question, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? And then we pointed out the widespread embrace of Christianity among African slaves in the South. And I said that either the secular critics know something about the Bible and Jesus that the black church doesn't know, or black Americans know something about the Bible and Jesus that the secular critics don't know. And I hope by this point we can see the obvious answer. When I think of a guy like Frederick Douglass and the sincerity of his conversion to Christianity, I think he poses a major challenge to the narratives of our modern world. Because first of all, he understood that even though he was massively oppressed, he was still a sinner in need of the forgiveness of Christ. That's not the way that people think nowadays. We have this sort of Marxist notion that people, uh, if they're poor and oppressed, are never wrong. That their, that their sins are, it's merely a product of circumstance. They're not culpable in any way. But examining his own heart, Frederick Douglass knew better. He knew there was a deeper oppression that he was under, a spiritual sickness that went beyond anything he experienced physically. And he knew that Christ had the only medicine. What about you? Have you learned that? Are you struggling under a weight of sin and guilt? neglecting the only possible cure. 
I think the second thing we can learn from Douglas's testimony is that a passion for justice is not at odds with a genuine spiritual concern for our enemies. This was the message of Jesus. We see it in Douglas's life. He said that when he, quote, found his burden lightened and his heart relieved, he loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though he abhorred slavery more than ever. He said he saw the world in a new light, and his great concern was to have everyone converted. I think we live in a time of unchecked anger and self-righteousness. It's hard to imagine anyone talking in this way about their enemies. And we've become so materialistic in our pursuit of justice and liberation that we neglect the weightier matters of eternity. But Jesus warned us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Frederick Douglass saw that a passion for justice is not at odds with a weightier passion for men's souls. Is that the way that we think about it and talk about these issues on Facebook and in the public square? Are we concerned for the well-being of our enemies' souls? I conclude with a final quote from McLaughlin. She writes, If slavery is the founding sin of America, the existence of the black church is perhaps its greatest miracle. The Jesus of the scriptures who cared for the oppressed and marginalized, embraced a slave role, spoke truth to power, and suffered torture, rejection, and death, appealed to slaves. Seeing through the hypocrisy of their oppressors, many found hope in the knowledge that they were loved, redeemed, treasured by an everlasting God who would one day bring justice. Amen. Amen. Amen.